Hey, this is Danny Heifetz from the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Craig Horlbeck, and Danny Kelly. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keo and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. It is Monday, August 7th. One of the big issues in both the ongoing writers and actors strikes is this transparency issue. The writers want to establish a viewer-based residual to reward hits on streaming services and to, quote, require transparency regarding program views, end quote. The actors have gone further, asking for 2% of the revenue that each show generates, which would, of course, either require the platforms to disclose this data or use one of those third-party data companies that do it for them. Hugely controversial. And in fact, at a sit-down between the WGA and the studios last week, the studio side said they weren't willing to engage on success-based residuals, at least according to the WGA. Streaming services hate sharing data, as we've talked about before on the show. The movie studios are forced to reveal box office because the theaters also have access to that data and it helps market the movies. And Nielsen measured TV for decades because that was an ad-driven medium that required a neutral third party that all outlets and ad buyers would accept. Nielsen also measures streaming viewership, but with much less access to first-party data. And there are a few other services out there, nothing totally accepted by the community. I've argued many times that the information imbalance allows streamers to capture more of the value of hit shows and avoid paying creators their full worth. But our buddy Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg wrote a piece last week arguing that the lack of transparency actually doesn't allow the streamers to disguise their biggest hits. It allows them to hide their biggest failures. He says it's pretty easy with the Netflix top 10 list and the viewership data from Nielsen and others to determine what is a hit these days. We know Ted Lasso is a hit, Mandalorian, Last of Us, and their creators are very well paid. The agents know how to extract money. But he says, quote, consider the hundreds of new shows produced each year that never appear on any top 10 list. And yet streaming services treat these shows like they are hits. They film full seasons. They buy out the rights ahead of time, inflating the cost of production. That means that even though most shows fail, people involved get paid as though they were modest successes, end quote. He's not wrong, and I know a lot of agents agree with his sentiment. They actually disagree with some of their clients who are arguing for more transparency during these strikes. But I do think that that underplays a key aspect of this debate, and it's one that's crucially important to the guilds as they push for more information about who's watching their work. So today we've got Lucas in here to talk transparency, measuring value, and how it's playing out with the strikes. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All 
All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw of Bloomberg. Lucas, welcome. Are you fully recovered from your Taylor Swift experience this weekend? I am fully recovered, but I did then also go to a concert Sunday night. So I admit I, I might be a little slow. But nothing can compare. I mean, it's Taylor no. and then everyone else. Uh, we're going to actually, we're going to ask you to stick around for the call sheet. We're going to do a little prediction on Taylor, but uh, that is not what we we're talking about today. Today, we are talking about transparency, my favorite topic in streaming. And it's actually a big topic right now because these guilds are focusing on it in their negotiations or lack of negotiations with the studios. And it gets to this question that I have returned to a lot and you wrote about in your newsletter of how we value things that are on streaming and the value calculation that has changed so significantly over the past 10 years. And you wrote a piece essentially arguing that the streaming opaqueness doesn't hide the hits. We can tell what hits are. It hides the flops and that the streaming services are actually afraid of disclosing the flops here. And if you are a talented person that is working with a streamer, you should probably be a little bit okay with the lack of transparency because you're getting paid for the most part with the buyout model where your backends are bought out from the very beginning. And you don't have to be held to account for shows that don't perform. And I have a little bit of a disagreement with that, but I'm going to let you argue it first off here. Well, I think it's it's clear, right? It's not clear. You're using the top performing. I think it is very clear to people who negotiate for a living mm -hmm. what works. The agents and lawyers who have to represent their clients, the hits at the top end, they know what is a hit. We have data, we have anecdotal evidence, and we see it in the behavior from the companies. There's this perception, I think, sometimes that these companies cancel successful shows and there's like this online outrage. That's not what happens. Media companies do not cancel hits. It is not in their interest. Media companies cancel shows that are not successful and they renew shows that are successful. Now, there are, there are always extenuating circumstances, individual things. Yeah, like the cost of the show. Shows that don't have a big audience but are culturally relevant. A show like Girls comes to mind on HBO back in the day. But I think by and large, we know what is successful. And one of the things that's interesting about it to me is the, the unions are pushing really hard for more transparency. And I, as a journalist, welcome this, of course. But I actually think that more transparency will be counterproductive for most of their members. Not to say that they shouldn't have it. Again, love transparency and understand why they want it. But I think the way the system has been structured means that a lot of people get paid for shows that are failures as though they are at least kind of successful. All right. There's a lot to unpack there. And I, I think that a lot of talent representatives agree with you. And I hear it all the time when I make the transparency argument. They're like, dude, be careful what you wish for. We get away with a lot because of this model. And people are getting paid that would have a show that if it were on the traditional network TV model would have been canceled after three or four episodes. You get to make the whole season. You get your back end bought out on season one, which usually you don't get a back end until season three, four, whatever. And they say, well, we're getting paid for our clients up front. So I want to address that argument. And first, what you're talking about are the clear hits. I mean, you cited it in your piece, like Ted Lasso, obviously, only murders in the building, 
obviously a hit for Hulu. Euphoria, obviously a hit for HBO. Those are the tip of the spear super hits that are clear that show up in the Nielsen reports that top the demand metric on places like Parrot Analytics. Those are the easy ones. And then when Netflix discloses something is in the top 10 for six weeks in a row, you kind of know it's a hit and the representatives will use that to get better deals. What I'm talking about are not the A's. I'm talking about the B pluses, the shows that are kind of in the middle. Maybe they're on the Netflix top 10 one week, but they don't chart on Nielsen or they don't have a traditional audience that is going to social media that's going to drive up the parent analytics numbers, or they don't have the equivalent of these CBS shows like a Blue Bloods that is going into its 14th season somehow, and yet I don't know anybody who talks about it. Those kinds of shows, we need a objective, transparent success metric so that you don't have to rely on how many Halloween costumes are sold or what people on social media are talking about. And that's where the transparency argument falls apart. And industry-wide, it would be better if we knew those numbers. Well, so a couple things. You brought up Blue Bloods, which is an interesting example because it's not a streaming show, it's a network show. But also, if you get picked up for season 14, don't you think you know you're a hit? Well, they just asked the cast to reduce their fees by 25%. So they're not as much of a hit as they used to be. Well, that's that has more to do with the fact that broadcast TV is... True, it fall, does, but, yes. but it also, it gets to the, the calculus here. I'm sure the show got super expensive. You got to pay for all of Tom Selleck's various hair pieces. And it got super expensive because people knew it was a hit, and so the salaries went up. True, but in the streaming universe, like, you know as well as I do that it's not just viewership that drives the value calculus for shows. And that is what is hidden. The reason people get pissed about decisions that Netflix makes is because a show could chart on Nielsen. And yeah, you think it's a hit. But according to Netflix, it's not because it's not efficient enough. It's expensive. The audience that it brings in maybe is already on Netflix. It doesn't bring in new customers or prevent them from churning. There are other factors. Maybe the creative is not what they want. I mean, there are things that are opaque that Netflix doesn't reveal that would go into this calculus. And if you're a representative trying to negotiate on behalf of a show that isn't one of the top 10% shows, I think it's really difficult. I hear you on the other factors, like, is it bringing in new audiences? Is it one of the shows that's making someone more likely to keep Netflix? All these, these calculations that the streaming services do that are like kind of real, but kind of fake. But I think a lot of it does come down to how many people are watching, how much does it cost, what season are we in, is it going in the right direction, how many people are finishing it. A lot of that data does get shared with talent, not always publicly. And I would say for the middle show that you're talking about, that's an issue on like bubble shows have always been an issue in television or a show that's a kind of a mid-sized hit that keeps getting picked up, but maybe isn't the breakout that people get paid a lot for. To me, the lack of transparency and data is an issue for some. The bigger issue is that there isn't a back end or there isn't syndication. There isn't that windfall in success. And there aren't formulas to take care of everyone. You know, Wednesday was an example I used in my piece. Like 
Jenna Ortega is going to get paid a lot of money for season two of Wednesday. What I don't know is what all of the other people who work on Wednesday are going to get. Are they going to get paid less for Wednesday because streaming shows are only eight or 10 episodes and the residual structure isn't as lucrative for streaming shows and there's all this viewership overseas that at least for now, there's not a bunch of money baked in for. So there are parts of these negotiations where the the unions and the workers stand to gain a lot. And they do suffer from the fact that there is no second window. I'm not sure that the viewership issue solves that. Ooh, I think that on the upper, 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 A plus, tip of the spear, 1% of shows, there is value that Netflix is capturing that would go in part to the talent if we knew exactly how big a hit these were. When Netflix put out those numbers for Squid Game, that it generated $900 million for Netflix. Netflix didn't put out those numbers. I reported those numbers. Okay. Well, I'm assuming they <laughs> confirmed them to you because they were widely circulated and they did not push back on that. Well, they couldn't push back on it because I had documentation. There you was no... Okay, let, so let's just... I, I I'm sorry. I need to address this it. because you and Kim and others tried to pretend like Netflix leaked this to me. I, Netflix I did not, was I did livid not. that I had this data. Okay, I just right. happened to get it. Fine. I do not want to go Siskel and Ebert on this. I want to acknowledge that you reported that. I want to say that $900 million off one show, according to Netflix internal calculations, where the creatives are not getting any of that, not great. And a sign that the very, very top shows are generating hundreds of millions of dollars and the buyout model and the transparency-free model is leaving money on the table. Ted Hope, the former Amazon executive, did this amazing speech at a film festival last week where he listed like these 50 reasons why the industry is on fire. And one of the reasons was, he quoted, quoting here, the streamers pay everything that's made like it's a hit, in quotes except for the hits. And what he's getting at is that, yes, the buyout model without transparency does pay everybody up front and you get this money. But for the Wednesdays, for the Squid Games, for these upper, 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 like genre-defining home runs, you're not getting paid what you should be. And that's a victim of transparency-free model. Well, it's tricky because historically in TV, t TV is different from the movie business. So, you know, in the movie business, you have a big hit, it comes out, and you get a share of the gross profit. Now, the, the amount that you get grows over time as it enters all these other windows, but you, you, in theory, do get paid a bunch up front. In TV, success was always a show lasting for many seasons. And your real windfall often come either towards the end of its run on the air or after, right? Like the creators of the shows that are getting rewatched all the time now, you know, NCIS and Friends and Big Bang, and all those shows that have these lucrative licensing deals with streaming services. Those creators are getting paid more now, or at least as much now as when their show was a big hit, right? Because you get power in time. When you create a hit show, you don't matter. Usually, you're not usually a known commodity. When the creators of South Park made South Park, nobody knew who those guys were. Yeah, but they're the perfect example. They've sold and resold their show, you know, yes, dozens of Yes, but that's, the, that's what's missing. They didn't right. get rich off of season one of South Park. They didn't get rich off of season one, two, three of South Park. They got rich a little bit as the show went on and they got paid more and more. And then they got really rich when it started to get licensed much later. You know, South Park came on in the late 90s and they're getting paid more now 
20 plus years after than they ever were when it was initially a big hit. And what's different now, a show like Squid Game 1 is not going to have long-term rewatchable potential. And so it doesn't, in theory, have that long tail. But even if you thought it could, Netflix doesn't syndicate and license out to other people. So how do you account for the fact that that big hit, normally you would get paid later on? Do you pay even more ahead of time? And if so, how do you factor that into a deal? Because Netflix doesn't know when it orders Squid Game that it's going to be a big hit. You, it you it doesn't allow... even know when they released it. It was a huge no, but surprise. You, I mean, if I were a deal maker here, I would try to get some kind of a renegotiation right up front, which Netflix has been unwilling to do. And you bake it in where if we get to X amount of viewership or, you know, a certain plateau, you get to renegotiate or you get certain bonuses. And that's not a function of the buyout model. The buyout model is here's a pile of money up front and good luck to you, sir. I mean, so what we're talking about there is some kind of reward in success, which I think makes a lot of sense. And Netflix has talked about it and then come up with reasons not to do it. But if you think about it, yes, a show like Squid Game, the creator of that show should have gotten paid some monstrous bonus. You can think about it if you're in the top 10, you know, for every country you're in the top 10 or in the top five or in the top three or in the top one, you get a bonus or for every hundred million hours watched or whatever, you know, they can come up with the formula. But there is a version of that that they could do. And it would, I think, go a long way towards placating the unions and would make more sense than the actors like I'm going to take 2% of all streaming revenue. Right. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I know that the guild is saying that they will not budge on any of the <laughs> demands that they've made, or at least all the demands must be addressed. Of all of them, the 2% thing seems like the most likely to fall away because like they put parrot analytics in there, which I don't think the studios doesn't actually gonna... measure viewership, by the no. way. And they're not going to turn over their future to the whims of some third party data company. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. The risk to reward ratio here is out of whack. I mean, Jason Blum has made this argument on the show and many other places. And that same speech, Ted Hope, this past week, he said the same thing. This is a quote. What happens to industries and ecosystems in which a reward equal to the risk is not offered? They collapse. That's a bit dramatic, but I get what he's saying is like, 
when Netflix is paying all this money up front and then not sharing the reward when things are hits, like that's not a great recipe for people doing their best work. The issue right now is people get paid up front and that works out better than it should for most people and worse than it should for a few. And those few where it works out worse, when something becomes a big hit, some of them do negotiate and get paid, but they probably don't make as much as in the 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 Uber case. Yeah, and keep in mind here, the Guild is talking about a different type of person than the agencies are talking about. I mean, as we know, the Guild is responsible for negotiating the minimums, the basic bottom of what you must be paid. Then the agents come in and they negotiate on top of that. So on a lot of these hits, like we've both written, the creators and the star will get these massive overall deals that in a sense, make up for what the profits would have been on the show. If you are Jenna Ortega, they're going to do an overall deal with you that will pay you a ton of money. So even if you're not getting back in, you're making big money there. It's everybody else on the show, as you've mentioned, that doesn't have the overall deal that the guilds are caring about because they're looking at the numbers saying, well, wait a second, if we don't protect these people, Netflix is going to take care of only the star and the creators and everyone else is going to fall by the wayside. And then we have what the guild has pointed to in these negotiations, which is the continued stratification of the haves and have nots in the streaming world, where the very top makes hundreds of millions of dollars, and everybody else makes nothing. And what has to happen, I think, unfortunately, for some of those members of, of the guild is, yes, the, the pot of money being paid to talent is obviously going to go up at the end of these negotiations. That's part of what happens. But if it is more reflective of what works and what doesn't, more of the money will go to people on a fewer number of shows. But if they get their way, it won't just go to the big stars. It will also be distributed, at least in smaller amounts, to the, you know, all the writers and all the actors and the extras and so on. Right. So uh, I'm going to put Craig on the spot here because I think this proves my point that we think we know what the big hits are, but we don't actually know. Lucas put out his top five rankings of shows on streaming for the first half of the year based on Nielsen data. Craig, what do you think the number one most popular show on streaming was the first half of the year? Oh, I don't know. Um, what was huge this year? I don't know. Something on Netflix. I'm trying to think. Good good guess. <laughs> Bridgerton. Nope. It is Ginny and Georgia. Wow. I have I heard of that, but I don't know anything about it. It's like a teen drama, but has kind of risque elements to it. And yeah, that was number one. The Night Agent was number two, also on Netflix. Ted Lasso, number three on Apple TV+. Plus. You, which is that success story that was on Lifetime and rescued by Netflix, and now it's a huge hit. That's number four. And then The Last of Us on HBO, um, HBO Max, now Max, which is technically not an original on streaming because they count it as being acquired from HBO, but it is an original to HBO Max. Four of those five shows, like no one I know has ever talked about to me. So what is the one that people have talked about? Last of Us. Nobody you know talks about Ted Lasso? Not really. I feel like I can't get people to shut up about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the only thing I heard was that season three was terrible. I guess that was the only thing yes. I heard. Yes. The Emmy-nominated Ted Lasso, the season three was terrible. So, But my point in mentioning that is that 
if you are the talent representatives without Lucas's list, would you have guessed that Ginny and Georgia was the number one show of the first half of the year based on the metrics that Lucas mentioned in his newsletter? Are you going to see a lot of Ginny and Georgia Halloween costumes? No, but you have the Nielsen numbers, you have the Netflix numbers, and you have the fact that Ted Sarandos talks about Ginny and Georgia during Netflix okay. earnings. Great. Tim Cook talks about a lot of things on, on Apple. No, but you Netflix. have weekly audience numbers, again, for hits. It does help. Ginny and Georgia was the number one show on streaming for, like, I don't know, five of the first seven weeks of the year or something. No, you do have those. Those are third-party numbers, and Netflix is very quick to note that the Nielsen numbers have limitations. They are U.S. only. And, and they don't really measure mobile and all sorts of ways right. that they're not perfect. So, yes. Yeah, so that is, it, imagine if there was a requirement for transparency and Netflix four times a year had to give us their top 100 viewership. Imagine how that would change the calculus throughout the industry. And the, not their, just their response to this is going to be, we publish ratings every week and no oh, other I, stream- Trust me, I Let hear me, from them all the time. No, and no other streaming service does, which is true. That is true. However, they cherry pick these top tens and it's not a full snapshot of where things rank. That's getting into what I was saying, which is that if you showed everything, you'd also see how small the audience is for a lot of these shows. Yeah. And that's where I wanted to end on that. So do you think that that's really what's going on here? Because I've had people argue to me that if services like Peacock and Paramount Plus and even Amazon Prime were forced to divulge how few people are watching these shows, it would be so catastrophic that their stock prices would immediately tank. <laughs> it wouldn't help. It, it definitely not, wouldn't help. But, but I mean, does that really matter that much? I mean, sure, it'd be embarrassing if you are the creator of random Amazon show and, you know, they were forced to reveal that 20,000 people watch your show. That wouldn't be great for you and you'd be embarrassed. It'd be like the old days of getting canceled after one episode. But who cares? Like, do you think that really would tank the stock? Depending on the company, probably not Amazon, because nothing Amazon's sure, yeah. Hollywood operation does is really affects the stock for the for the company. But if you're Paramount and you've spent all this money on the Sheridan shows and we saw the audience for what I mean, they do OK on streaming. So maybe a bad example. But we saw the audience for those or your example with Peacock or Disney Plus or Hulu. There are all these shows that come out where we have no idea how many people are watching them for the most part. If we want to talk about Amazon, they're most expensive shows. They show up in the top 10 for like a week and they disappear. You look at the full audience and you're going to realize, huh, these services are spending all this money on these shows and their second and third biggest hits deliver a smaller audience than like the 20th biggest show on Netflix. Like, what does that mean for the money they're spending? That's kind of a concern. Yeah. Well, if you believe Rich Greenfield on the show last week, everyone should just sell their shows to Netflix. Well, that <laughs> I'm, I'm not parroting Rich. I don't think hiding the flops is the reason that we don't have transparency. We don't have transparency because we entered a new, new era. They didn't need to disclose for advertising. They chose not to disclose. And if you give a company the opportunity to not reveal data, they're going to not reveal data. And the guild sat on this for 10 years. And, and, the the, and by the way, on this the talent years. was fine with it. You want to know why they were fine with it? Because they got really tired of getting hectored by networks and having to pay attention to the ratings every morning. And it was a relief. That and they were told by their agents, here's a check that's bigger than you've ever received before. Take it. Love it. We all make our numbers. Let's go to Cabo. Yeah. That's honestly what happened. And now, 10 years later, they're being like, wait a second. My show makes how much? 
for Netflix and wait, like there's income disparity of how much within this guild that's fueling the strike. hundred percent. There was a moment in time with enthusiasm around streaming where we lost a little bit of touch with like how normal business is supposed to work, where you're supposed to have an interest in success. Everyone's interests are supposed to be aligned. Cost actually should matter. And we're painfully trying to put that back together and like restore some semblance of normalcy to the way that Hollywood operates. All right, well, that's not happening anytime soon. All right, we're back with the call sheet. My prediction. Lucas, thanks for staying on. Let's talk about Taylor. Craig, I'm bringing you in here too. You have not gone yet, but uh, Lucas and I both went to the Eras tour this weekend at SoFi Stadium. Life-changing experience for you, correct, Lucas? Yeah, I thought it was amazing. And I, I did not <laughs> enter... No, I did not enter a huge Swifty. I, I appreciated her music, liked some of the songs, but I was not a huge fan. Well, that's what struck me. I, I am a casual fan as well, but you, you hear this three and a half hour show and you're like, holy shit, that's a hit. I know that song. I heard that one. I've seen most of the biggest pop stars in the world perform at this point, and she is, with a few others, head and shoulders above everyone else in terms of the quality of the performance and just the, the overall production. She definitely knows what she's doing. And the audience, I mean, as much as I was joking in my newsletter about how everyone I know was at that tour this weekend, the core demo for her is still young women. I mean, we were surrounded by screaming young women throughout the show. And she yeah, Matt has a, sent us a photo of the of the men's bathroom at SoFi. <laughs> and it is just a barren wasteland. Yes. The men's restroom was a dream. I have never been to a stadium event where there was nobody in the men's restroom. So that was that was a great, great plus there. We did a whole show a couple months ago about the gross from this tour and how it's almost surely going to be a billion dollar tour. Taylor is not releasing touring numbers, which is unusual. Most of these acts will release their numbers to Polestar. No data transparency from Taylor Swift. No data, Taylor. Open up the books, please. My prediction, though, is because she's adding so many shows and she's coming back to the U.S., I think she's going to keep adding shows until this is a $2 billion tour. You think it's about hitting $2 billion specifically? I think it's about being the biggest ever that nobody can ever catch. And she will tour and tour and tour until she is satisfied that nobody will ever catch her. That is, I mean, you saw this show, Lucas. This is not a woman who is fucking around. She wants to be the biggest there ever was. She is playing like a legacy act, except she's 33 years old and still 100% relevant. She's charging through the roof and she wants the biggest tour of all time that nobody will ever be able to match. Here's the issue with the prediction, because she's already going to break the record. No tour has been a billion. She's going to breeze through that. Though she's not reporting pollster did estimates. She's making around 14 million a night. Let's call 13 to 15. She would have to play between 140 and 150 dates at that level. Her current plan, I think, is maybe 110. She added some. So it's possible. She added a few more U.S. dates kind of end of next year, I think she'd almost need to kick it into 2025 to make it happen. I'm not saying it won't, but that's just a she long time. She has this time. movie at Searchlight that she wants to direct when she's done with the tour, but I think she's going to do it. She's going to do it. She knows this is the pinnacle. You know, she hasn't toured in four albums. This is where all her fans are have been waiting for. She could sell out as long as she goes. And if she wasn't delivering on the tour, then I think people would be upset. But People love the show. 
So good for yeah. Him. The reviews are are kind of great across the board. I haven't heard one bad thing about it. All right, that's the show. I want to thank Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg, producer Craig Horback, our editor Jesse Lopez, and I want to thank you. We'll see you later this week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.